no amount of persecution. Feedback? You hear that? No amount of persecution could stop God's kingdom from breaking through. No amount. <laughs> we learned this in seminary. <laughs> no amount of persecution could stop God's kingdom from breaking through. This week in Immerse, we covered a lot of ground. So when Pastor Eric asked me on Monday if I'd be able to preach this weekend, I said, sure, sounds good. And then I looked closely at the Immerse reading schedule, the end of Romans, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. And I just had to laugh. That's a lot of ground to cover. Thank you, Pastor Eric. So please get comfortable. We should be here for at least another seven hours, but it's going to be a great study. I promise you that. Uh, it's also, even though it's a broad um, swath of reading, it's also some of the richest teaching in all of Paul's writing. Romans was truly Paul's magnum opus. It's packed with theology. It's a book that a person could spend an entire lifetime studying. His pastoral letters written to the individuals of Timothy and Titus and Philemon are packed with insight, both for how to lead a church. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop this mic and go to a handheld. You guys got me live here? Okay, is this better? Perfect. We'll see how this one works. Sorry, guys. Okay, so his pastoral letters, much better, it's not ringing in my ears now, were written to individuals, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. They're packed with insight for both how to lead a church, how to pastor a church, how to be a shepherd, um, how to live out the new Christian ethic. And then finally, his letters to the churches in Philippi, first filled with joy, uh, to Colossae, meant to address heresy and the deed of Christ, and Ephesus, exploring the doctrines of grace uh, and practical Christian living, were written while he was imprisoned. We, we, we can't forget that. This wasn't Paul on some um, island retreat uh, drinking margaritas. He is in prison writing these letters. Now, it's been an incredible week of reading and listening to Scripture, my own heart has been moved deeply many times. One of the places it's been most moved has been in feeling the ache, the longing uh, of Paul for his readers to simply get it. Even from prison, when the future of Christianity had to fill in doubt, he kept fighting. He kept writing. He kept believing that God would have his way. So when the narrator to our weekly immersed introduction says, no amount of persecution could stop God's kingdom from breaking through, I think we see that truth played out in how, in how Paul battled and pleaded and fought for the new Christian faith and the fledgling church that undergirded it. And as we look back over 2,000 years of Christianity, up even to this day and this moment, we see a story of God's faithfulness in building his church through the fortitude of men and women who could not be swayed by persecution. As much as it's a doctrinal um, reading, uh, it's also the story of the church, which is Christ's bride. Now, if you're new to Springs Community Church, it might be confusing when we say we're doing something called Immerse. What you need to know is that we're in the midst of an eight-week 
uh, community Bible engagement series. We're now at the midpoint of it. And we're doing it both in small group setting and individually. It has been an amazing experience so far. Uh, this morning I got to be part of a immersed group that just had an absolutely incredible dialogue, blown away by the wisdom and insight and patience and love that the group shared for one another. If you are new or if you haven't jumped on board yet, it's not too late for you to get involved. Come to me afterwards. We'll find a group for you. I will call you at midnight and read it to you. Whatever you want to do, whatever you need, we are here to serve you and to get you into God's word. Okay. So since there is no way to possibly cover all that we've read this week, I landed on a passage from Ephesians to focus our attention this morning. I think it's especially apropos for us as we launch into our new vision that Eric's been walking us through. I think it drips with meaning and intentionality for us in this new season at SCC. We'll be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm going to read it over you, and then we'll unpack it together. But before I do that, let me pray. Father God, we are in the midst of a great cloud of witnesses who surrounds this place right now, Lord. We are part of a story that you have been writing since the beginning of time. We ask that your spirit would move. Lord, I ask that you would hide me behind your cross, that your words, your vision, your message for these people would come forward right now, God. We need your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Here is Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. After I have a Michael up here, I wish I had that voice of his, that golden, deep voice of God. I don't have that. But when I die and go to heaven, I'll be about 6'4", and I will have your voice. <laughs> the Word of God. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. Just like our reading for this week, there are a lot of different directions we can go with this passage. As I've been reading over it and praying through it, I felt God lead me to three concepts I think he wants us to study today. 
Now, depending on how you view God, your ears will hear this passage very, very differently. If your God is an angry and vengeful God, you might hear the words of Paul shaming his listeners. We were dead because of our sins. You have done nothing to earn it. You are a worm unworthy of God's love. If you read it that way and take it seriously, you will live your life accordingly, shrinking from the altar of grace, a plebeian in the kingdom of God, a second-class citizen cowering in shame. Religion or religiosity will make us feel that. But I don't read it that way. I don't think we're supposed to read it that way. I hear something different in the tone of Paul. I hear Paul reminding the Ephesians of their former state, not to shame them, but to encourage them and frame the sweetness of grace. I hear love as Paul writes. He says, don't you remember? Don't you remember? Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Just like everyone else, remember? Do you remember what that felt like? But... My Ephesian, my Ephesian friends, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Don't you remember? It reminds me of the Max Locato quote from his book, Gentle Thunder. He says, there are many reasons God saves you to bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty, but one of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he is fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you are the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. Sounds like a father to his son. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe and he chooses your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent you at Bethlehem? Face a friend, he's crazy about you. Do you hear that message from God? Do you hear that tone in Paul's writing? We can't miss that, that we are beloved by God. But to say that does not mean that we practice an easy-peasy, cheap grace where we ignore the reality of sin. On the contrary, we recognize a very costly grace, one that cost Christ his very life. In his confessions, Augustine writes, My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. We don't use the word sin, sin, a whole lot in the church anymore. I think at some level there is a fear of offending people. But I think the reluctance to use it has a much deeper, more pernicious reason. I think we're comfortable. I think we basically have pretty comfortable Western lives. I have to be careful saying that, of course because it might sound like I'm being too simplistic and minimizing the very real struggle that many of us face, financial, relational, health, etc. I'm not minimizing that, and I feel deeply for it. I've had conversations this morning with people and see the ache and the pain, and I know it's not always easy. But beyond that is a comfort level that the overwhelming majority of the world doesn't experience. And I think, as fortunate as we are, there also is a cost to our comfort. One of these costs is that we often don't experience the full impact of sin. And as a result, we tend to underestimate its power, how pervasive it is, and how destructive it truly is. 
It's like watching a wildfire on TV. We know it's bad in Northern California right now. We feel horrible as we watch houses and lives be destroyed. We feel terrible as we watch the natural beauty get consumed by the flames. But it's something different when it's in our own backyard. When we watch Black Forest burn. When we watch the fire race down the mountain like it did with the Waldo Canyon fire. We have a different perspective than watching it on TV. Someone else's story of fire takes on a greater significance when it becomes our story of fire. I think that's true with sin too. Not their sin, but my sin. It's not some far off thing. It's not the bad people. It's not something we've escaped. We're all guilty. We're all covered with it. You're welcome. Isn't that a happy message to come to church on Sunday? It's the truth. Every one of you in this room, as beautiful as you are, I will look out and see saints as deep as your walk of faith is. We're all covered and marred with this thing called sin. I think Paul was talking to an Ephesian audience that was very much like us. When I read his words, I hear a man who is simply trying to help them remember how desperate they were, pleading with them to not forget their need for rescue. It's interesting that you can see Paul echo these comments in other letters, uh, particularly in Titus uh, 3, verses 3 through 8. Let me read that over us. See the echoes of what he said uh, to the Ephesians, starting in verse 3. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hate each other. But... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, says Paul. And I want you to insist on these teachings that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. The teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Truth. Left to our own devices, our lives become works of destruction, self-sabotage, brokenness, depravity, pointlessness, ultimately death. But the work of Christ is a work of grace that rescues us, redeems us, restores us, and makes us a prize in God's kingdom. Did you hear that in verse 7? Listen to this. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. We are a prize unto God. Dr. Timothy Keller says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. We, each of us, no matter where we are at in life's journey, are a work of grace. You hear that? You are a work of grace. If you are a baby Christian, if you are a lifelong Christian, if you are a not-yet-Christian, if this is your first time in a church in a very, very long time, I want you to hear this. You are a work of grace. He knows it. You know what else you are? You're also a work of beauty. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. 
What language? We are God's masterpiece. Paul chose an incredible word here, a word that he only uses two times in all of the New Testament. Their time is in Romans 1. It's the Greek word poema, which we translate here as masterpiece. Some translations use it as workmanship, but it also serves as a foundation for our word poem. It's not a stretch to read it this way. For we are God's poem. For Veda is God's poem. For Philip is God's poem. For Heather is God's poem. For Betty is God's poem. We are both the work of his hands and mind, the product of God's intellect and will, but we're also the work of God's heart. You are a work of extravagant intentionality and beauty. Listen to one of my favorite passages from Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. This is David talking to his God. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you, God, are still with me. David has a tender heart. He has the heart of an artist. He looks at his own form, his own body, and he marvels not as an act of pride, uh, but as an act of recognition and of worship of God the poet, God the creator, God the author of beauty. And he says to us, you are a work of beauty. And this work of beauty becoming the poem of God, his masterpiece, is not a singular event. It's not one time. It's a careful process where God takes the raw stuff that makes us who we are, which bears his image, the Imago Dei, and he keeps working it. He keeps redeeming it. He keeps reshaping it like a sculptor working a slab of marble. In, in 1463, members of the city council of Florence, Italy, decided they needed a monument to enhance their city. They commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue in front of City Hall. Someone suggested a biblical character wrought in the neoclassical style, an expression of beauty and strength. They approached one man named Agostino di Duccio, who agreed to their terms. Duccio went to the quarry near Carrara and marked off a 19-foot slab to be cut from the white marble. However, he had the slab cut too thin. When the block was removed, it fell, leaving a fracture down one side. The sculptor declared the stone useless and demanded another. But the city council refused. Consequently, this gigantic block of stone, which the artist had picked out, lay dormant for 30 year, 38 years, an embarrassment to the entire city of Florence. Then, in 1501, the council approached another citizen, the son of a local official, asking him if he would complete the ambitious project now using the broken slab. Fortunately for them, the young man was named Michelangelo. 
not just a Ninja Turtle. He was 26 years old, filled with energy, skill, and imagination. Michelangelo looked himself inside, locked himself inside the workshop behind the cathedral to chisel and polish away on the stone for three years. When the work was finished, it took 49 men five days to bring it to rest before the city hall. Archways were torn down, narrow streets were widened. The people from across Europe came to see the 14-foot statue of David, relaxing after defeating Goliath. It was even more than the city fathers had envisioned. The giant stone had been transformed from a massive fractured waste of rock to a masterpiece surpassing the art of either Greece or Rome. That's our God, a God who takes discarded slabs of marble, one with fissures that make them seem unstable and unredeemable, and he picks them to do his best work on. That stone sat there in the quarry for 38 years, left to crumble, but Michelangelo, like God, picked it and made a masterpiece out of it. It was Michelangelo's poem, his poema, his masterpiece. And God does not make a work of beauty to hide it. He puts it on display where it radiates the care of the creator and tells a much, much bigger story. When we look at Michelangelo's David, we see both the beauty of the statue, but also the glory and talent of its creator. Your lives are a work of grace. They are a work of beauty, and they are filled with purpose. You are not meant to simply be displayed on a mantle, but are to be the ongoing expression of God in this world. You are a work of purpose. The remainder of verse 10, still from Ephesians 2, says, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's not a statement of morality, that we were created to be moral statues, simply living good moral lives. That's important, but it misses what we're really here for. Exodus 9:16, talking to Pharaoh, but I have spared you for a purpose to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for his own purposes. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We hear those words, and for many of us, our hearts begin to race with possibility for a ministry we want to start, for going overseas, for fighting some type of social injustice in this world. Now, all those are, are, are awesome, and if God is really putting those types of visions on your heart, we want you to press into them. We want you to discern them. We want to come alongside you and support them. They're grand, big visions. But sometimes I think we get caught in the vicious cycle of grandiosity and non-action. We dream bigger than reality permits, and nothing happens. We spend our time in what amounts to mere Christian fantasy. You are a work of purpose, and sometimes, often, the work right in front of you, right out your own door, in your neighborhood, in your own house, is the work God is calling us to. What if that thing God has designed for you to uniquely do is relational? 
is connecting with your neighbor, your estranged sibling, the alienated person at work, maybe your spouse, maybe a wayward child. What if the grand call in our lives is to be really good neighbors, loving the people closest to us? There's a great story of Father Gregory Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest who runs a ministry in Los Angeles called Homeboy Industries. He's an incredible man. You Google his name, you'll hear stories that will blow your mind about one man pouring into and serving the needs of a, of a broken community, predominantly uh, Latino teenage boys. Uh, he tells a story um, um, of a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo. Rigo was getting ready for a special worship service for incarcerated youth when Boyle casually asked if Rigo's father would be coming. The following is a summary of their conversation. So he asked Rigo, is your father coming? And Rigo says, no. He's a heroin addict and never been in my life. Used to always beat me. Then something snapped inside Rigo. He recalled an image from his childhood. He says, I think I was in fourth grade, he began. I came home, sent home in the middle of the day. When I got home, my dad says, why did they send you home? And because my dad always beats me, I said, if I tell you, promise you won't hit me. He just said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So Rigo took a risk, and he told them. At that moment, Rigo begins to cry. He starts to wail. He starts to rock back and forth. Boyle, Father Boyle puts his arm around him until slowly he begins to calm down. When Rigo could finally speak again, he spoke quietly, still in a state of stock, a state of shock. He beat me with a pipe, with a pipe. My father beat me with a pipe. After Rigo composed himself, Boyle asked about his mom. Rigo pointed to a small woman and said, that's her over there. There's no one like her. Then Rigo paused and said, I've been locked up for a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she takes every Sunday to come see me? Rigo started sobbing with the same ferocity as before. After catching his breath, he gasped with his sobs. Seven buses. She takes seven buses to come see me every weekend. Can you imagine that? Boyle concludes this story with an analogy. God is revealed in the person of Jesus, loves us like Rigo's mother loved her son, with commitment, steadfastness, and sacrifice. According to Boyle, we have a God who takes seven buses just to arrive at us. All throughout Jesus' ministry, his birth on Christmas morning, his meals with sinners, his healing of the sick, his death on the cross for our sins, he showed us the heart of God, the God who will take a long journey of love to find us. Your life is a work of purpose, and it might be as simple as taking a bus to love those who need God's love the most, helping them to see they too are a work of grace, a work of beauty, and helping them to find they are also a work of purpose. Let me close with this. Michelangelo, let's return to Michelangelo. Uh, his final work was called Rodani Pieta. Uh, maybe some of you know that Pieta is one of his absolute finest works. This is a reprisal of that first work. On which he worked for 10 years. Giorgio Vasari, a contemporary Michelangelo, wrote that Michelangelo ended up breaking the block 
probably because it was full of impurities and so hard that sparks flew from under his chisel. The sculpture was, res- the sculpture was rescued by a servant and survives to this day. It bears the mark of Michelangelo's chisel. You can see it being worked, but none of the beauty of his earlier Pieta. What happened? Another sculptor named Lorenzo Dominguez once summarized the dilemma and unpredictability of working with stone. He said, the stone wants to be a stone. The artist wants it to be art. The same dilemma exists for those of us who are the work of God's hand. In an attempt to free the image of Christ that's within us, God begins chipping away everything that isn't Jesus. The stone of our lives either submits to the chipping or it resists. If it submits, features of the Savior begin to emerge from our life. The more we submit to the chipping and the working of God, the master worker of stone, the more he begins to emerge from our broken lives. If, however, it resists and continues to resist, there will come a day when God will let the stone be stone. C.S. Lewis says, as much in a similar way, God says to two people, thy will be done. And to those others, he says, okay, go ahead and have your way. We are entering into a really exciting season here at Springs Community Church. I am thrilled with the vision that's been given to Pastor Eric, something that's been worked out over many, many months and many, many years in his own lives. I keep thinking I understand it, and there's an added layer to it, a new angle, and I can truly see that God is doing a new thing in our midst. If you're excited to be part of this vision, if you understand that you are a work of grace, that your life is not your own, that we don't deserve it, that it's the free gift that God poured out his life into the form of a human. He poured out his life on the cross. His resurrection gives us hope that grace is a promise to us. If you recognize that you are a work of beauty, that your life is complex and hard as it can be at times, is in the hands of a master sculptor who places the chisel exactly where it's supposed to go, who knows when to bring the hammer, who picks the most broken pieces of stone from the quarry, who jumps in there and looks for the parts that have been discarded, if you recognize that your life is in the hands of the master artist, that you are a poem of Christ, and if you recognize that your life has purpose that's beyond mere heart-pounding, life-breathing life, that your life is not your own, that when grace consumes you and when beauty consumes you, you become a storyteller, I want to say to you that you are in the exact right place. The vision is becoming tangible, and there is a space for every single one of you on this bus. We want you here. We're not looking to build up the walls of a church. We're looking to build the kingdom, to experience it, to express it, to unleash the Holy Spirit in this city and in this world. If you're here, you're not here by accident. And if you hear anything from me this morning, I want you to hear this. You're here because God brought you here, and you're here because he wants to do a work with you and in you and through you. Uh, coming up in November, um, November 12th, November 19th, we have something called Kingdom Partners. It's a chance for you to come and learn more about the kingdom vision and your fit in it. And normally we, we extend it as an invitation to, to newcomers, but I want to extend it to every single one of you. 
I don't know if we have that built into the budget for food, but we'll pray for a miracle. I want every one of you to come on those two weekends uh, after church on the 12th and 19th of November. Come see where your place is at in this journey. You are a people of grace, a people of beauty, and a people of imminent worth that spills out into purpose. Amen. Let's stand and